I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, fact or fiction. This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on The Crown and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this and every episode of The Crown, fact or fiction by Robert Hardman, royal biographer and mail columnist. Hello, Natasha. And here we are on the episode of our podcast, which will cover the final episode of Series 6 of The Crown. It's called Sleep, Deary Sleep. It's episode 10. But before we start viewing it and discussing it, we just want to let you know we've got a few special episodes of this podcast um, that we're planning to bring you after this one. Yes, we've been so pleased by the reception to the podcast and it's been so nice to see your positive reviews, messages and comments from all around the world. And if you were one of the people that wrote a review, then thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, Some of the comments we've received from people, um, uh, and and as you say, I mean, from all over the world, um, is that we ought to go right back to the beginning of uh, season one of The Crown. Uh, Now, I don't think we're going to do that. We've come up with something a little more interesting than that. We don't want to reveal our precise plans just yet, but just rest assured that although we're watching the final episode of season six of The Crown now, this will not be the last time that we get together to make a podcast, will it? No, absolutely not. We'll be here continuing to talk about the crown. Um, But before we look forward, um, we're going to turn our attention back to uh, the final episode, Sleep, Deary, Sleep, that hopefully will not send us to sleep, Robert. (laughs) Um, Sure, it um, won't. (laughs) With a bit of luck, this one will be one to remember. And I think all of you know by now how this works. But just in case you're joining us for the first time, and if that's the case, where have you been? There are spoilers ahead. So now let's sit back and watch episode 10. Season six, the grand finale of The Crown. As you say, Natasha, it's called Sleep, Deary Sleep. So I thought the black shoes and low heel, which works well for the first meeting after breakfast. Did we ever discover what that was about? They wouldn't say. It's not normally a good sign. Marry me. Instead, investigations into WMDs are now carried out by the Iraq survey group. That's not a proposal. I can't do that without my mother's permission, but I realise more than anything in the world, I want you to be my wife. Well, we haven't even got to the opening credits, and boy, there's quite a lot to uh, unravel there, Natasha. The episode opens with the Queen's Piper playing his morning uh, ritual, morning wake-up call, if you like. Then it cuts to the Queen getting dressed with the help of her dresser, who I think is very clearly meant to be Angela Kelly. Then we cut to another early morning situation as Prince of Wales and the then Camilla Parker Bowles are sharing a breakfast table and suddenly he says, marry me. So it's all go, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. One little detail as well, which amused me. When there's the close-up of the Queen's shoes, when Angela Kelly is helping her step into the low heel she's wearing for this day, she's wearing a bunion pad on one of her baby toes. And I don't know, is this an effort to normalise her? As far as I'm aware, there isn't a wide range of literature on this subject, but... (laughs) (laughs) What are your thoughts? 
thoughts on that, Robert? Why? Well, that's, that's very eagle-eyed of you. I really didn't spot a bunion toe there. Uh, because what... I saw it and I just thought, well, that is just unusual. Well, it <laughs> certainly is. I mean, what, what actually struck me was it. the whole thing opens with the, the piper marching up and down outside the palace, actually the wrong bit of the palace as it happens, um, very early in the morning um, and, and waking up the Queen. Now, the Queen's Piper, uh, now the King's Piper, always plays at 9am. The Queen would have been very much up and about by 9am. Um, in this episode, the sound of the pipes is, is stirring her from her slumber. So an early on uh, bit of fiction there and the fact of fiction file. But it's certainly very lively. And yes, uh, there is the Prince of Wales, while the radio is blaring, saying, marry me. And is it correct that Prince Charles would have needed the Queen's permission. Yeah, I mean, constitutionally, uh, yes, as, uh, as as a member of the royal family, he would need the monarch's permission um, to marry. But um, I, I don't think it, it would have prefaced his proposal to his future wife to say, well, will you marry me? But I've got to check with my mother first. It slightly like dampens the romance. I, of the I, I think it would probably in real life there was a bit more romance than that. But of course, we don't know. Uh, the Crown don't know. They've made it up. Let's see what happens next. Your Majesty, the purpose of this meeting is that we might really step up our planning of Operation London Bridge. Uh, That's the code name for your funeral, ma'am. We know what it is, Edward. Is that really necessary? I recently got a clean bill of health, and in terms of age, I'm only... 80. Yes, all right. As a template, we've used the funeral of the late King George VI. We would call on an estimated 6,000 military personnel for the procession. So this is the last episode of The Crown and we are clearly looking ahead also to the end of the Queen's life. We see her going to see the Earl Marshal who is in charge of state ceremonies um, and a few other officials um, and he claims that as the Queen is approaching her 80th birthday the time has come to discuss Operation London Bridge which as many people know are the plans for her funeral. Prince Philip says he's already been working on his plans for his funeral for years um, and then the Queen has shown extensive models of the palace and the Victoria Memorial and all the troops and she appears transfixed expecting it closely as all these officials look on. Robert I believe you know quite a bit about Operation London Bridge. How accurate is all of this? Well yes this is another case of the Crown um, retrofitting what we now know uh, which simply uh, was not being discussed at the time. In actual fact the day that this podcast drops uh, is uh, the day of publication of my new book. Um, Sorry for the shameless plug there, but I mean, it's relevant because it's called Charles III, um, The Inside Story. And I've spoken at some length in it to uh, those involved in the planning of the Queen's funeral, including the Earl Marshal. Uh, The Earl Marshal here um, is completely wrong. (laughs) It's played by an actor called Jonathan Hyde, who's in his late 70s. The Earl Marshal, Eddie Norfolk, at the time this is depicted, which is in the early noughties, 2004, in fact, was actually in his mid-40s. And no one was talking about um, London Bridge in this sort of detail at that point. The the plans um, as they took shape really didn't come about for a probably another 10 years. Um, but look, we can forgive the Crown that. I mean, what they're trying to do here in the full knowledge that Her Majesty has died by the time that viewers watch this episode, they are trying to deal with uh, a living depiction of someone who the audience know is dead. And um, clearly that's going to be a strong part of this sequence. The other thing we see there is uh, Prince Philip 
saying it's only a matter of months till your 80th birthday. Well, we're in 2004. Um, the Queen's 80th birthday is not until um, April 2006. So sorry to be nitpicky again, but um, that's not quite right. And the idea that there would have been this sort of great parade of officials watching the Queen, watching um, a mock-up of her funeral, um, I, it, it's it's just not it's not how it worked. What is true, I'll absolutely give them that, she took a very keen interest in the planning for her, her funeral, uh, but um, I think was a lot more matter of fact than we see her here. Uh, but now with the credits roll, and let's see where we go next. I remember when he first came to power, they took to the streets and cheered. One's reminded once again that the career of prime ministers is nasty, brutish and short. Except I gather he's no intention of stepping down. Once people get a taste of life at the top, they never want to leave. They just want to keep on and on. Yes. Anyway, I'm sure this is not why you've come to see me today. No. I've come to make a request I wish I'd made 30 years ago. To ask your blessing to marry Camilla. Well, the episode proper opens with uh, Tony Blair um, being subjected to uh, noisy protests as he leaves the palace while the Prince of Wales comes in to ask the Queen for permission to marry Camilla Parker Bowles. There's some fairly clunky lines there where um, uh, the Prince of Wales says uh, Mr Blair's problem is he doesn't want to leave. Obvious nod to the fact the Queen is not stepping aside either. And then there's a fairly heated discussion as the Prince pleads to be allowed to marry Mrs Parker Bowles. She talks about how she's been heroic. She's never complained. The Queen is not convinced at this point, so she needs to take advice. Then they look out of the window where they see Prince Philip tinkering with the Land Rover that he wants to use as a hearse at his funeral, as we all well recall. One of the great sights of his remarkable funeral in 2021 was him off to meet his maker with his coffin on the back of a specially customised Land Rover of his his own design. That was very much true. Then we cut to one of the palace drawing rooms as the Queen and her officials begin to discuss the plans for this funeral that clearly weren't in place back in 2004, but never mind. They begin by discussing the opening section of the plans, this great wad of plans, which is all about where will the monarch be upon the moment of her death. And the Queen tries to reassure them with a little joke and says, I shall do my best to keep it local. One thing that struck me about this is, obviously, we don't know what was said and when, but in the Boxing Day BBC documentary that you were involved in, Robert, Princess Anne said something interesting about how the Queen um, had to be persuaded that it would be OK to pass away at Balmoral because she was worried that it would make things difficult for the family. So I guess just, you know, for people watching, the idea that the location of her death would have serious kind of implications for the rest of the family and for the institution is quite interesting. Yeah, it is. It is, as you kindly mention, yeah, I was the writer and co-producer of the BBC documentary over Christmas on the King's first year, Charles III, the coronation year. And as you say, in it, the Princess Royal revealed that the Queen had, you know, given serious thought to where she was going to meet her maker and did worry whether being in Scotland might cause undue problems. I certainly don't think it was on her mind back in 2004, which we're currently discussing in this episode of The Crown. But no, you make a valid point. I mean, where the monarch dies does certainly affect 
the funeral plans, um, it particularly if a monarch were to die abroad, then obviously you've got to repatriate the body. And the Queen, as we know, was the very first British monarch in history to die in Scotland. I'd like to discuss your dear papa. How would you both feel about him getting married? I knew it. Why can't they just carry on as they are? Because Charles would be king one day. And the last time we had an unmarried king on the throne, it did not end well. Yeah, but what's William? I suppose she does seem to make him happy. And having him happy and settled is good for us. And ultimately, good for... Good for... Well, as you say, he is going to be king, isn't he, one day? So that scene opened with uh, Harry and William ladding around, uh, shooting beer cans and also occasionally their friend. They talk about Harry Mead's birthday party, who was one of their friends in Gloucestershire. And they say how there will be 250 guests and the theme is colonials and natives. William's not very impressed with this theme, but when he criticises it, Harry accuses him of being an undergraduate and is much more gung-ho about the whole thing. But then they're called down from their sort of laddish games by palace aides who say they've received a call from the Queen's private secretary. And then we skip ahead to seeing the Queen walking into a meeting with a very sizable group of archbishops and bishops. I mean, there's at least nine of them in that room. It looks like there's a few more later walking down the stairs, but it's a very big group. And the Queen says that she would like to give her permission, approval for the marriage of Prince Charles and Camilla. And they deliberate about this, wrangle over all the kind of difficulties this might throw up and then suggest that they would need to have a prayer of penitence, some kind of acknowledgement of wrongdoing, even wickedness and marrying in a civil ceremony. Uh, And then we see talking to William and Harry um, about this, uh, they go for a walk, getting their views. Um, And William is much more pragmatic, isn't he, Robert? Yeah, I thought there were a number of um, other things being crowbarred into this um, short sequence. Yes, we begin with this extraordinary sight of the boys on a balcony at Highgrove um, playing around with guns and basically shooting at at a mate of those who's trying to hold up beer cans. I mean, I know young boys can be a bit larky with air rifles, but I really don't think it would go to the extent they were actually shooting one of their friends. It does look very um, entitled, shall we say. And then, yeah, they're summoned up to meet the Queen, who's in this meeting with the bishops, who, as you say, are instantly bridling at the prospect of uh, the Prince of Wales marrying Mrs. Parker Bowles. I think what this is really meant to convey is the sense there was a a degree of unease within the Church of England about this wedding, about a a future supreme governor of the Church of England being divorced and marrying a divorcee. How would that stand? So this debate was rumbling on whether the Queen actually called all the bishops together in one room like that to sort of ask for their blessing. I doubt it. And this point where the Archbishop of Canterbury, who's a very good likeness, by the way, he does look very like Rowan Williams, the then Archbishop of Canterbury. The business about the bishop saying there needs to be some confession of past wickedness. I mean, I'm afraid this just reflects the fact that people are very unfamiliar with the ways of of the church these days, because that's just bog standard rubric in the Book of Common Prayer when it comes to the general confessions or preamble at every service. People talk about their manifold wickedness and um, past sins. It's just part of what everybody says. But here it's being dressed up as some special atonement that must be um, imposed upon the Prince of Wales for past naughtiness. Um, And uh, yeah, and then we see the Queen walking with her grandsons and, and, and asking them what they think. And it appears to be the first time 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. That they have any inkling that their father might want to marry Camilla Parker Bowles. Now, again, I mean, the idea that Prince Charles is doing all this without talking to his sons first and that it's the queen who has to break the news. I don't know. And then finally, another sort of subplot we can see being generated here is the way in which Harry is entirely marginalised. He keeps trying to speak. William speaks on his behalf. He can barely get a word in. And it's a very much a case of the writers of The Crown talking up, pointing up the fact that you know Harry is very much the spare, as his book will later depict him. So Queen in a quandary, Charles in a hurry, and um, boys feeling a bit left out. That's where we are. Your Majesty, you asked to see me. I did. They've got me planning my funeral at the moment, just as a precaution, and I'm in the process of choosing the music and wondered if there was a tune for the pipes you thought might work. Is there a particular one that you like? I particularly like a sleep diddy sleep. Will you play it for me? What now? Why not? Inside. It's a hell of a din, ma'am. It's not a din. To me. Well, the plot moves on. The Prince of Wales gets his nod of approval from the Queen down the phone and rushes out into the garden to find his now fiancé in the greenhouse and formally proposes this time, gets down on one knee and they hug. We then cut to the Queen saying her bedtime prayers. Prince Philip wanders in and they both have a brief conversation about how worried they are about Prince Harry. And Prince Philip says, well, a spell in the army will do him good. The Queen is still preoccupied with plans for her funeral. And then again, we see the Queen's piper marching up and down outside the palace and she summons him in and asks him if he can uh, suggest a particular lament that he likes because she's trying to choose some music for her funeral. And so he says, yes, well, actually, there's one I do like called Sleep, Deary Sleep, and the Queen asks him to play it. At which point we see this sort of comedy scene. I I, I really did think this was um, losing it a bit. As the pipes strike up and all over the palace, people are slamming doors shut because this is such a terrible din. The fact is, people in the palace are entirely used to bagpipes being played at every state banquet. At the end of it, you don't just get one piper playing indoors. You actually get half a dozen going right round 
around the table. There's no way people would have sort of started putting their fingers in their ears. And then we cut to the investiture chamber being prepared for that morning's investiture. And one of the, the housemaids um, starts singing along to sleep, dearie, sleep. It's not actually the right room they've got at the palace, but um, I'm being really fiddly there when I say that. It's not the ballroom where they hold investitures. But yes, Sleep Deary Sleep was played at the Queen's State Funeral or Westminster Abbey. It was a, a piece of music that she chose, although it wasn't the one that really moved her most. The piece of music which Queen's Piper played right at the end as she was lowered into the royal vault to meet her maker was actually called a salute to the royal fender smith but then i don't think that would make a very good title for an episode of the crown would it natasha <laughs> yeah i thought it was all quite poignant until the maid started singing and then it all got a bit mamma mia for me which <laughs> yeah just just a little we bit did say the last episode reminded us of strictly come dancing well, and that's yes. a very good point this time we, we've got shades of mamma mia yes uh, one thing that um i don't know i don't think uh, it's actually documented but the moment that prince charles is seen getting down on one knee here is depicted in a potting shed and apparently this was actually an idea that came from Olivia Williams, who's the actress that plays Camilla, um, because it was first written to take place in a rose garden. But then she suggested uh, the potting shed because uh, she did a bit of research herself and found that during lockdown, Charles and Camilla had an informal competition growing vegetables. And so she kind of thought that this would be a nice way to depict the proposal. But is it accurate, Robert? Do we know? Who knows? Uh, I mean, it could have been in a greenhouse, a potting shed in the garden. Look, they're both very keen gardeners. Uh, Let's not begrudge the crown that little flight of fancy. Let's see where it takes us next. What about an astronaut? Or a cowboy? No, he's more of a goody-goody. I'm going as a lion. Obviously. Lion King. Oh, arf, arf. I'm going to go as... What about Biggles? What's that got to do with colonials and natives? Good point. Germany had an empire, didn't they? What about this? I don't know. Maybe cover the swastika? Oh, come So that scene begins with Prince William, Kate and Prince Harry arriving at a costume rental shop and William chooses a lion costume, which is, of course, very non-offensive. Harry makes kind of an awkward joke that Kate should pick a wedding dress. But then Harry himself goes and picks a rather controversial outfit, a military uniform with a swastika armband. And he says, oh, Germany had an empire, didn't they? So, you know, in his mind, it's kind of fitting with the theme. And then William jumps in and says, yeah, you know, this is fine. Wearing this outfit doesn't make him a Nazi. You know, it's just an outfit. And then we arrive at this riotous party. Um, It's held at this big country mansion. It's meant to be Harry Mead's house. And having a great time, their friend Guy Pelly does this ridiculous performance where he performs, you know, I want to break free, dressed as the Queen. Um, It's all very silly. Um, But then one of the guests, and with a little sort of brick phone and a tiny, tiny camera, is not very impressed with Harry's outfit and snaps a picture. And then we have the morning after the night before, uh, and it's William who's the first to uh, have a trawl through the uh, newspapers that have arrived at Highgrove, and he is appalled to see that Harry's Nazi armband is all over all the papers, it seems. And then we see the, the, the general response. The Prince of Wales, absolutely furious, throws things off the breakfast table. Harry is, is uttering expletive after expletive as he awakes with their friend Guy Pelly slumped in a chair. Uh, they've obviously all had a hell of a party and now reality's kicking in. And uh, then we 
cut to the Queen discussing this with Tony Blair. Blair's trying to make light of it, saying, well, you know, I used to get into trouble at school too. And the Queen says, well, hang on, you know, I can't have been as bad as wearing a swastika uh, three weeks out from National Holocaust Memorial Day, which, in fact, the timings on that are broadly true. This did all happen just weeks before the 60th anniversary of the liberation of Auschwitz. So it was excruciating. It was actually uh, not immediately the day after, was it? I mean, uh, I I know newspapers move fast, Natasha, but uh, it was about five days, I think, before this story actually saw the light of day. It was an exclusive in the sun, um, but it became obviously a very, very big story. And I think um, it's something that Harry talks about quite a bit in his autobiography spare and he's particularly upset that he feels that he was sort of egged into choosing this uniform by both William and Kate. The scandal happened, the chronology and the precise details maybe not but does it ring true to you and and, uh, it did look like a hell of a party. Yeah I was going to say it was almost reminiscent of my New Year's Eve but it wasn't that good (laughs) (laughs) um, Yeah I mean we don't have other than spare any insider accounts of how this incident happened happened with the Nazi uniform. There's a slight discrepancies in how Harry describes it. He says that um, he was actually on the phone to William when he was in the costume shop and kind of talked him through it and they, you know, they agreed it was fine. And then later they kind of saw the outfit in person and he says they were kind of howling with laughter uh, when he had it on and clearly didn't didn't see it as an issue. Uh, Peter Morgan has maintained that he hasn't read a spare. The researchers have said that they have done and clearly this has influenced the, the way that this has been portrayed. We do know that um, Charles obviously was very angry at the time as were the other members of the royal family. Prince Harry was actually quite gracious about Charles in spare saying that um, Charles spoke to him with genuine compassion at the time and Charles apparently said to him, how could you have been so foolish. And the comment that was given to the son at the time when this story broke uh, from the palace was, Harry has spoken to his father and is sorry for any offence caused, which in palace language is actually a pretty strong comment, isn't it? Yeah, I think one thing that the the Crown don't uh, dwell on, and which I think people were asking at the time is, how on earth did Harry get from the costume shop to the party wearing that Nazi armband without somebody be it a protection officer, member of staff, the Prince of Wales, someone just saying, oh, look, hang on, that's not a good idea. But I think it's a sort of insight really into the fact that the the boys weren't being controlled and, and told what to do. They were living a fairly free and footloose life at this point. Um, and so it has proved painfully so for Harry. You card. Why didn't you tell him what you've been thinking since you first started working on your funeral? How tired. No, not just tired. Exhausted you are by it all. Yes. How ready for a rest. And at the same time, how ready he suddenly looks. Who? Charles. We even have precedent. Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands was 68 when she stepped down in favour of her daughter. Charlotte of Luxembourg was also in her late 60s. Well, I'm afraid uh, that's where this episode has gone off the rails as far as I'm concerned. We've just had another dose of the Crown's ghost syndrome. We've had the younger Queen coming back to taunt the older Queen uh, about uh, the need for her to step down. Um, Earlier on, we saw the Queen getting out the 
Palace Cine Film Collection and watching old footage of the carefree Princess Elizabeth and then giving way to the dutiful Queen that followed. Then we cut to the Queen going for her morning ride in Windsor Great Park. She's in the stables. Prince Philip turns up. Uh, They have yet another discussion about the problems with Harry. And then Prince Philip says, do you want to discuss anything about your funeral? I mean, this obsession, the, the idea that Queen is constantly fixating on her funeral uh, just after her golden jubilee when there are still another two jubilees to come. Please give it a break, Peter Morgan. But no, on we go. And then, yes, up pops the ghost of middle-aged Elizabeth uh, in the shape of Olivia Coleman saying, you coward, why don't you get on with it? Why don't you face up to the fact that uh, it's time to step aside and and starts lecturing older Queen on uh, other European monarchs who have abdicated to make way for their Heirs. She cites the case of Queen Wilhelmina of the Netherlands and Charlotte, Grand Duchess of Luxembourg, says, you know, these bicycling monarchies, it's worked really well. And she even cites the example of Queen Victoria and says, you don't want to be like her. And then even rakes up the Queen's shortcomings as a mother when it comes to the choice between mother and queen. So we've got this everything coming together, this idea of the Queen undergoing this sort of crisis of confidence. Um, She's facing up to her own mortality. She's worried about going on too long. She's seriously thinking it's time to hand over to Charles. And I just think this is utter cobblers. What about you, Natasha? Yeah, it's just, I mean, I like Olivia Coleman, and I think her depiction of the Queen previously was good. But yeah, I just don't think it works here. It's just all a bit weird. I, I mean, did wonder who it was to start with. I thought, who's this funny woman coming <laughs> in with a bucket of water and starting to lecture the Queen? Is it Which ghost are we on? I thought it might be Princess Margaret coming back from the dead. And then suddenly realized, <laughs> oh my gosh, it's Olivia Coleman. Yeah, I mean, my fact or fiction diligent notes at this point were just, it all gets very arty, full stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's one way of putting it. I think, you know, the, the idea um, that the Queen was lying awake at night, being tormented, should she be handing over, it's just something that she never pondered. She'd made her oath for life at her coronation. We've discussed this before. I'm sure we'll discuss it again before this episode is out. But, you know, the A word simply wasn't part of her vocabulary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone has now agreed on a date for the wedding. 9th of April, at the Guildhall in Windsor. And there will be an opportunity for me to say a few words. 
Oh, I'm sure everyone would, would be delighted. Would, would you uh, like me to draft something? That won't be necessary. I'll write something myself. That's all. Thank you, Robin. We've just seen the Queen deciding that she's going to make a speech at Charles's wedding. It's all, incidentally, the wedding has all seems to have gone seamlessly at this point. Uh, there was actually at the time all sorts of dramas and problems to do with uh, where it was going to take place. They had to relocate it from Windsor to Windsor Town Hall because of problems with uh, licensing. And then the Pope died, which forced them to change a date. Uh, none of that's um, touched on here. Um, the Queen's just told, oh, the wedding's all been arranged. It's all fine. So the Crown have decided to overlook that genuine side drama and she's decided she wants to make a speech and everyone's going oh why does she want to make a speech and this this rumor starts circulating among the royal family that she's going to make a really big decision this is it she's gonna chuck in the towel she's gonna abdicate what is it the queen's gonna say yeah i thought this was quite comical just the idea of you know princess anne trying to get information and then andrew's going riding with the queen to try and weasel some information out but they're all still none the wiser i mean you know whether or not that is true i thought that was just quite amusing storytelling but one thing that perhaps explains the crown missing out that detail you just mentioned about you know drama about what date it was going to be and things like that is that peter morgan he said in a quote in the la times the final episode is not really about the charles camilla wedding it was just an event or a pretext for us to play the main drama against which is an internal one for the queen as she wrestles with her conscience about whether to step down in favor of a resolved and happy charles when you think about that mentality that explains why this is all happening the way it is quite far away from what actually happened. Well, it might be happening in Peter Morgan's head, but I can tell you it's absolutely not happening in anybody else's uh, inside (laughs) the royal family. Uh, Sorry to go back to my new book, but um, I, I really have spoken to people very close to this. And this idea that Charles was, uh, uh, as we see uh, at this point, you know, really angling for the throne, desperate for the throne. What he most wants. Hoping on his wedding day his, his, his mother is going to hand him the throne. We have Harry saying to William, William saying to Harry, it's the wedding present he most wants. He really craves it, him and Camilla. It, it just wasn't like that. He didn't crave the throne, certainly not at this stage of his life. In fact, as he told someone who I spoke to for my book, he said he never wanted it to come a moment before it did. That really is the situation. This was not something that was on his mind, certainly not on the Queen's mind at this point. But clearly, Peter Morgan has decided that it was and is going to um, use this as the driver for the last of the 60 hours of Crown that he's written, which seems an interesting way to go out. But we are calling this Crown Factor fiction. I'm definitely putting that in the fiction file. The Queen was not contemplating abdication on Charles's wedding day. Charles did not want her to do so. It was a wedding day. They, they were just happy to be getting married. Full stop. You were all for the uniform in the costume shop, egging me on. Now suddenly you're Mr. Morality. Oh, okay, right. Stabbing me in the back. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, how many faces does this man oh, have? You know, I'm not sure I like you are turning into. And I'm not sure I like you've been Can all you along. stop bickering, please? I beg you. Can I just make one request, that you don't make my wedding day a misery? We are, by now, on the eve of the wedding, and yet the boys are still arguing over the Nazi armband incident. At one point, we see Charles breaking up the argument, saying, 
demanding, really. Boys, I don't want you to make my wedding day a misery. Now, that to me is absolutely cut and paste from Harry's book, Spare, which opens, I think, with Charles saying to his sons, um, as they argue um, much later on, don't make my old age a misery. I know Peter Morgan has said uh, he hasn't read Harry's book, Spare, but um, frankly, um, this is uh, as clear as day that Spare is littering this particular episode. The idea of tormented Harry gradually drifting apart from both his father and his brother is all over the place in this episode. And uh, I think we should bear that in mind as we reach the denouement. So it's wedding day. We see Prince Charles and Camilla are getting ready in their wedding finery. Prince William is in his suit. Um, he's looking at himself in the mirror. He's looking very dashing. Uh, there's a picture of Charles and Diana on the mantelpiece. And he swigs a glass of something that looks like whiskey, something strong anyway. And then we see Harry, who's also looking very smart in his suit. But he's looking very moody, looking out the window. We get the sense that he's not too happy about what's unfolding today. And then they all arrive in Windsor, um, which was actually filmed in Rochester, but it looks like a very good Windsor. And we see Prince William, Prince Harry and the rest of the royals arriving in a white minibus. I watched this and thought that cannot be true, but I found the video and and they did do that. They have accurately uh, recreated that. So well done, The Crown. (laughs) Yeah, I remember it very well. I was there that day and, and it was this sort of blend of high state occasion and a sort of ordinary register office wedding because both the prince and his bride were divorcees. They had to get married in a register office. That meant coming down to town. And Windsor does have a rather nice old town hall designed, in fact, by Sir Christopher Wren, I think. And that's where they came. And the rest of the royal party did turn up in a coach, as we see here. And the streets, really, there was a real sense of occasion. Let's not forget the monarchy had been through a pretty grim 90s. Things had turned the corner with the Golden Jubilee and everybody does love a royal wedding and and there hadn't been one in Windsor for six years. The previous one was that of the then Earl of Wessex and Sophie Rhys-Jones and, you know, Windsor is a town that sort of comes out for these things. So we see there there's rather sweet signs and and shops saying congratulations Charles and Camilla and cakes in windows and bunting everywhere. I mean, it did feel like that on the day, I have to say. But now I think we cut back up to the castle. One person who very pointedly was not at Windsor Town Hall was the Supreme Governor of the Church of England, Queen Elizabeth II, felt it would be inappropriate. Here, however, she seems to be busy writing. I don't know what you think you're doing. I'm doing the sensible thing, the responsible thing. If I go on another 20, 25 years... A tired, white-haired geriatric queen will hand over to a tired, white-haired geriatric prince of Wales. Those are the rules. It would mean that for the next half century, the British monarchy would be a very decrepit experience indeed. Have you forgotten the oath that you took? 
I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service. We see the Queen writing her speech that she's going to give at the wedding reception. The normal person watching this probably wouldn't actually see what she's written on the cards because it's just a quick flash. And then before you know it, Claire Foy has appeared as the young Queen and starts giving a sort of lecture, you know, I don't know what you think you're doing. But before we get on to that, Robert, you have looked rather closely at this, haven't you? See what she was writing. We just paused the, the footage there and, and you can quite clearly see that the Queen is writing an abdication speech. You can't see all of it, but if you look in the uh, what's been very neatly written by some uh, Crown researcher, possibly by a Mel- Maybe it's a Melder Staunton herself, we don't know, <laughs> but it does say um, it, it, there's a sort of preamble to where we are today and, and then the Queen writes, with this in mind, I have begun to reflect on my position. While the word abdication is fraught with contradictions, there is another word I would propose in its place, retirement. So what we've got here, the Queen is writing an abdication speech. Now, the idea the Queen just sits there and does this off her own head without talking to anybody, without talking to her Prime Minister, her family, her heir, that she's going to do it on a wedding day. I mean, yes, it's a drama. We know that. Uh, The Crown keep telling us that. But frankly, I mean, just utter, utter, defies any sort of credibility. I mean, you think what abdication actually entails. You look back to 1936. um, And Quite apart from all that, uh, the character of the Queen, I know I say this time and again, I'm sorry if I sound like a stuck record, Natasha, but I keep saying that they don't get the Queen right. Here we see her absolutely dithering all over the place. One minute she's going to abdicate, and the next she's not. She can't make up her mind. She's down in the dumps. She's lacking in any sense of direction. It's just not the Queen that I've written about, I've followed all those years. I've spoken to umpteen people, members of her family, her staff, friends, people who work with her, past, present, prime ministers, gamekeepers, you name it. Nobody would recognise this characterisation of Elizabeth II. That is my fundamental problem with the series, but particularly this moment. Anyway, rant over. What did you think? (laughs) Well, aside from creating dramatic tension, it feels like a vehicle, perhaps, for Peter Morgan to share what he thinks about the royal family because after you know the queen is scribbling down her abdication speech as we said Claire Foy appears and starts trying to talk the queen out of it and saying that if she continues in her position. Claire Foy we should add for those who didn't see the early series was the actress who played the queen in the first two series correct? Yes yes and um, it's very popular and lauded for uh, doing doing a great job. We're looking at early Elizabeth II. Yes who's kind of just taken on the role of monarch and she's reminding the older queen of these responsibilities. Here it's hypothetical, but they're talking about the situation, which obviously was fact about what would happen if the queen did stay on. Um, And the older queen responds by saying, if she continues, she would be a tired, white-haired geriatric queen who will hand over to a tired, white-haired geriatric prince of Wales, making the British monarchy a decrepit experience. That just feels like that is what Peter Morgan thinks. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what we're getting here is a sort of, uh, you know, A-level student essay on, uh, you know, monarchy for or against. Claire Foy is sort of saying, well, you can't abdicate it. We don't have the luxury of choice. And then she goes on to say the system is not natural. It's not fair. I mean, it's effectively acknowledging that monarchy is all bonkers, but you've got to stick at the job, love, and there's no getting out of it. At one point, the young queen reminds the old queen of what they call her oath. You know, the whole of my life, be it be long or short, 
short, which actually were the words from Princess Elizabeth's 21st birthday speech in 1947. It wasn't an oath. It was a, a speech. She made a very different oath at her coronation. Never mind. Don't let the facts get in the way of a story. And so we have both young queen and old queen reciting the 21st birthday pledge to serve her people for the whole of her life. And it ends with old queen wandering off down a corridor with young queen telling her to forget about any ideas of uh, having an easy life. You buried Elizabeth Windsor long ago, she tells her. Yeah, I mean, just from a fact or fiction point of view, because this is all meant to be introspection, obviously there aren't records of this. I didn't even really have any notes on this because it just feels like this is a message that the writers wanted to portray. It's a long way from the facts. Clearly, it's entirely made up. There's no doubt about that, and that's fine. It's a drama. It's, as I think Peter Morgan said in an interview with Variety, a dramatist, that's what we do. Uh, we, we write stories about kings and queens. My issue, as has been all the way through this, is that a large part of the world is going to think this is what the queen was really like. This is what she was thinking on this day, that she really was torn between uh, handing over and staying put on her son's wedding day and it just makes her look like a completely different human being from the one who was queen of our country for more than 70 years. I mean, did you ever speak to anyone who said that she felt like she had locked away a younger version of herself? She was a pragmatist. She was a realist. Prince Philip once said of, of Prince Charles, he said, he's a romantic, I'm a pragmatist. And I think the same went for the Queen, really. She just didn't overthink these things. She was very practical. She was Queen. It's what you do. There wasn't a sort of lot of uh, self-doubt. There wasn't a lot of, you know, shall I go, shan't I? Whoever you talk to, whether you talk to her bishops, her archbishops, her chaplains, her friends, as I say. She took the view, always took the view, uh, this is a job for life. She did once say to uh, a cousin who wrote a book that, with the Queen's permission, so I think we can take it absolutely as fact, she conceded that you know she might have to stop reigning and there might have to be a regency if she became incapacitated, if she got Alzheimer's or if she was very seriously injured. She accepted that. But aside from those circumstances, she was in it until she met her maker, as indeed she was. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we do earnestly repent and are heartily sorry for these our misdoings. The remembrance of them is grievous unto us, the burden of them is intolerable. Have mercy upon us, have mercy upon us, most merciful Father. Forgive us all that is past. Well, in a matter of seconds, we've been through the entire wedding ceremony and the Crown have focused almost entirely on the words of the Archbishop, the prayer, the confession, talking about uh, we acknowledge our manifold wickedness and everyone's looking slightly awkwardly and, and even uh, the bride and groom look at each other and there's a lot of talk, you know, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. It's as though this is a specially written prayer in which Charles and Camilla prostrate themselves before the Almighty and say, I'm so frightfully sorry. Um, and, and if people haven't been to church, they might think, and around the world, people are going to look at it and think, oh, golly, you know, the Archbishop uh, delivered this really harsh, fire and brimstone prayer. Um, 
what it fails to acknowledge is um, these are the words from the Common Prayer Book. These are the words written in 1662 and which traditionalists have uh, used at, at church services ever since. And um, the reason that they had this particular form of words at this particular service is that the Prince of Wales was a great devotee of the Book of Common Prayer. He was actually, uh, I think he might even still be, patron of the Prayer Book Society, which is an organization that tries to keep this form of words going. Obviously, many church services now have a, have a rather more modern liturgy. But it was what was on the day. It was it was picked up. It was noted at the time. I remember people said, you know, there was going to be this uh, general confessional prayer. But the wording of it, the use of it, was really nothing unusual. But you wouldn't know that if you were not a churchgoer and you were watching The Crown and taking it as gospel, which it ain't. For those of you who don't know me, I am the mother of the groom. <laughs> I know that over the years it hasn't been easy. Being Prince of Wales is hardly a recipe for happiness. History has taught us that. To be condemned to watch an old parent do a job one can imagine oneself doing better for years and years. So the Queen's long-awaited speech has finally arrived. We're at the wedding reception at Windsor Castle. Uh, the Queen gets up on the stage and she's got her cards that we've seen her preparing earlier with what we understand is her abdication speech. Uh, she opens with a joke and she does go on to talk about Prince Charles and she credits him for filling the vacuum of waiting, um, you know, to take the throne uh, with charitable work rather than idleness. And then there's a moment where she kind of flutters with the cards and it looks like maybe this is the moment she's going to do it is she not and then she skips on to praising Camilla for being Charles's strength and stay kind of really giving the impression that she it was just that abdication was just on the tip of her tongue what do you make of this Robert? Yeah I mean there's that moment where she she pauses and we see she's looking at one of those cards we saw earlier and it's got her crossings out through it so she as recently as an hour or two before this was seriously contemplating abdicating the throne at a wedding. And then at the last minute decides, oh, actually, I won't do that after all. And you see the rest of the family frowning a bit, thinking, oh, I think I think something, she's just missed a bit there. And, There's a lot uh, of swigging of drinks. They're all looking quite furtive and nervous. Yeah, have you see the look on Charles's face. There's a sort of slight sense of, what what's she going to say? Is, is it coming? Is it coming? And then, and then there's a sort of amusement at the end that it hasn't happened. As I've said already, um, there's absolutely no way in a trillion years the Queen, had she ever decided she was going to abdicate, the idea she'd just do it at a wedding reception without telling anyone, least of all the Prime Minister, who would be the first to know, because after all she's a constitutional monarch, not a dictator. It's the sort of thing an autocrat might do. But never mind, that's no doubt millions of people around the world think uh, the Queen was just about to abdicate and then at the last minute did not. The one thing that was true that we do know, it's absolutely correct, that many people have alluded to before, is she did make a speech and she did make a rather sweet joke about the Grand National, which had indeed happened that day. She got the results right in this particular episode. It was won by Hedgehunter. And the Queen's remark was that her son and his bride had happily made it into the winner's enclosure. And she did congratulate her son on now being with the woman he loves. I I think that was the tone of the day. It was a wedding. It was not a near abdication. 
This way, please, everyone. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, were all spirits and melted into air. God's sake, take a bloody photograph, will you? All's well that ends well. Still, it defines the crown. Whatever the course, the end is the renown. So now the wedding reverts to more familiar wedding pattern. We see William and Harry decorating the going away car, writing just married on the back. That is very accurate, faithfully recreated, um, because uh, I was part of a production team filming that day at Windsor and we filmed the boys decorating the car and saying goodbye to the happy couple and it did look just like that. What I suspect did not happen is this comical scene with the wedding photographer. The photographs were taken by Hugo Bernand. People who saw the Christmas documentary I did for the BBC will have seen Hugo Bernand taking photographs of the king and queen. In The Crown, he's depicted as this sort of extraordinary figure who starts quoting Shakespeare at the wedding party, an annoying Prince Philip who starts shouting, oh, will you just get on with it? He's wittering on with lines from All's Well That Ends Well. You know, I don't know quite what Peter Morgan, the point he's trying to make here. Hugo Bernand would not preface any photograph, any photography session with chunks from Shakespeare. <laughs> it's all about getting the photo. We do know that Prince Philip got very short-tempered with photographers. As far back as the coronation, he had a go at Cecil Beaton for taking too long over the official photographs then. I was in the room at one of his last photographic sessions, which famously is still available, I think, on the internet when I'm afraid the language gets very colourful as he's sitting down to lunch with a load of Battle of Britain pilots and he says, just get on and take the beep photograph. So that rings true. I really don't think it happened on this occasion. Never mind. It's a moment of high comedy. And it's now coming to a close because the Queen, we see her, her very sort of broad smile on her face. I think she feels she's done the right thing, that the happy couple are indeed happy, that things are looking up, and she quietly slips away from the reception and goes to pray in St. George's Chapel, where Prince Philip is on his way to find her. Again, she would never have gone to St. George's Chapel. There's a private chapel at the other end of Windsor Castle. That's where she used to pray. But never mind, St. George's Chapel looks much more impressive. There she is on her knees, communing with the Almighty, and in walks the Duke of Edinburgh. Good day, I think. Well done with the speech. Thank you. It's funny. Don't sound so surprised. And not a hint of the torment you've been going through. Was it that obvious? Yes. But the right decision has been made. You will continue as queen for as long as you possibly can, for one reason. Because those are the rules. No. Because those that come after you are not remotely ready to take over. No, but I wasn't either. Remember, I was so young. You were born ready. You are one of a kind. And so, approximately 60 hours of one of the best-known and most expensive television dramas ever made um, comes to a close. That's it. The scene has ended 
um, with the Queen on her own in St. George's Chapel. Prince Philip approaches and congratulates her on her speech and then really comes out with an extraordinary dismissal of the whole point of monarchy. He just says, the system makes no sense anymore. He quotes a bit of Dryden saying, even monarchs must obey the command of fate. He says, we're a dying breed, the party's over. And the good news is that while Rome burns, we will sleep, deary sleep, pointing to the grave beneath St. George's Chapel, where indeed he and uh, Elizabeth II now will spend eternity. Prince Philip delivers this incredibly gloomy, if not downright terminal prognosis for the monarchy, and then departs, leaving the Queen on her own. And there she is in the chapel, suddenly up pops the very young Elizabeth we saw earlier in the series in a flashback. Then we see early Queen Elizabeth, Claire Foy, middle-aged Elizabeth, Olivia Coleman, and they follow her out of the chapel as she departs through the nave of St. George's Chapel shrinking in an extraordinary way. It's almost as though she's she's taken Alice in Wonderland potion. There's this incredible shrinking queen. The, the chapel gets bigger. She gets smaller. I think by the time she gets to the other, other end of the chapel, if one were to put it in proportion, she'd be about one foot tall. I suspect there's an important message here. I'm not quite sure what it is, other than maybe the special effects have gone a bit wrong. But as I say, thus ends this extraordinary exercise in dramatizing the longest reigning, longest serving monarch in British history. We could debate this for days, couldn't we, Natasha, every element of this series. But how did you find the ending? Do you feel we went out on a high, a low or something else? I thought it was poignant that, you know, she leaves the chapel and stepping into the light. And I think it was a respectful goodbye to the Queen. But I think it encapsulates the two kind of juggling themes of, you know, as you say, there's this absolute decimation of the monarchy. The lines that comes out of Prince Philip's kind of diatribe is pretty strong. It's saying, while the Queen is one of a kind, the younger generations are not remotely ready for monarchy. All human things are subject to decay. They're a dying breed. The party's over. You know, it just goes on and on. It's really hammering the message home, which is obviously something that a lot of people have been critical of the crown for, that it is kind of seeding this message in people's minds that is perhaps Peter Morgan's view that, aside from the Queen, the monarchy is over. There's a very strong polemic feel here. Yes, of course, we accept it's a drama and all that. And Morgan has said, as he said to Variety magazine, that this closing this series was a challenge. He said, because of how deeply everybody will have felt, he said, talking about the Queen's funeral, I had to try and find a way in which the final episode dealt with the character's death, even though she hadn't died yet. So I, I you know, accept that, that it is a tricky thing to pull off. But to finish on this downbeat appraisal of the whole royal exercise as this doomed, pointless and rather ridiculous show, you think, well, why have you just spent 60 hours and I think an estimated $100 million dramatising all this. I think it ends on a sour note with some rather bizarre camera work. But, you know, that's how they chose to conclude it. Fine. I'm not sure I'll be rewinding that episode then, will you? <laughs> well, probably not. I mean, one thing that was an interesting alternative perspective is uh, maybe this was a juggle in their mind, obviously, yeah, having just had 
the death of the Queen and her funeral and all the emotion everyone felt about that. They felt that they needed to give the Queen a respectful send-off. But there was some commentary that perhaps this final episode was a shift in Peter Morgan's view. Perhaps he clearly has feelings about the monarchy as a whole, but maybe he did grow to have some feeling of affection for the Queen. Uh, It was the journalist Camilla Long who flagged in a a piece in the Sunday Times that in 2016, Peter Morgan told the Radio Times that the Queen was a woman of limited intelligence, inward-looking, quietly spoken, whose interests are sport and the countryside, and kind of flagged you know what yeah, a long way very, this depiction is from yeah. that which, which was quite something coming from someone who won an oscar writing a film about the queen and who has spent probably the last 20 years writing about very little else and and of course an award-winning stage play too so i think by the end he did say to variety magazine that he was a sort of monarchist he felt that you know they're part of what britain was all about and i think he said i'm not sure britain would be britain without a monarchy having said that Yeah, of course. He's a dramatist. He's a playwright. And this is drama. And I'm sure around the world, millions of people will have been moved by it, will have been gripped by it. It's certainly been a huge success for Netflix. By their own admission, it was, I think one of their executives called it Netflix's crown jewel. It's what took the platform from being a touch-and-go streaming service to a global phenomenon. So in that regard, it's more than repaid its debt to its makers. Whether it's done a service to the monarchy, it's not its job. It's not there to do that. I suspect on one level, it's been fabulous PR for the monarchy. It's made the Windsors relatable and interesting to millions of people worldwide who might not otherwise have been interested. Yep, the Queen has bunion plasters. You know, she's human. (laughs) And of course, making the fundamental point that being Queen, being royal is not always a bundle of laughs, that with privilege comes duty, obligation, pain in the full gaze of the court of public opinion. So overall, it has certainly lifted the profile of the monarchy and we live in an age of soft power so uh, it could be argued that's been a good thing Um, yes you and I have dwelt on a lot of slightly annoying issues that maybe don't concern other people but if you're going to make out that this is a very noble piece of truth telling as the makers have professed in the past then I think they could have been a little more accurate I was very amused by one (laughs) remark from the, the head of research they professed to take all this terribly seriously. And Salzberger said, these are not inaccuracies. They were decisions to deviate from history. I'm going to remember that one. If you ever feel like making something up, Natasha, and you and I wouldn't because um, we're journalists, but if we ever do, we can just say, well, these were decisions to deviate from history. Or perhaps recollections may vary, as I'm sure they will now for many people that, you know, may have watched The Crown. I mean, it's <laughs> a, I've spoken to people my age who've said that, you know, they have been gripped by it. You know, I joked at the start of this episode, you know, it's called Sleep Deary Sleep would it send us to sleep? No, I actually was, you know, gripped. But a lot of people say that, you know, they're constantly pausing it, trying to Google, you know, is this true? Is that true? I think it it genuinely is confusing for people because it it welds so much that is true and it looks real. But as you say, with so many instances that deviate from what really happened. But as we have done in the past, we have looked into the credits again on this one and seen that there are certain things that they were very, very keen to get right. They've had some amusing specialists in the past. And in this one, they had a bagpipes advisor. So there we go. 
Good. Pipe playing has been an important part of this episode. It's the title of the episode Sleep Dairy Sleep, of course, as a piper's lament. So um, I think we can credit the, the bagpiping with being authentic. Have they got any other consultants on this one? Well, they, they credit uh, four baristas uh, who presumably were working very, very hard to make sure all the cast and crew were well caffeinated. But aside from that, there's also some other interesting roles. There was a corgi trainer, a fox handler uh, and a bird coordinator. And we're assured uh, at the end of this episode that uh, no animals were harmed during the making of this programme. Well, I'm glad that no animals were harmed, but I would say that quite a lot of reputations were harmed. Well, thanks so much for joining us for this episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. And thank you for so many comments and messages we've received. And here's one from Kath Ammonford. Um, We had several actually on the subject. Kath asks, uh, I'm interested in why the Pope's death and the change of wedding date wasn't mentioned. Um, Somebody else has uh, written in to say that they were very surprised by this as well. Why wasn't it mentioned that the wedding day was moved at short notice? Well, we have touched on that. Earlier in this episode, Kath, I dare say the writers of The Crown had so much material to deal with, they couldn't obviously incorporate everything. I was a bit surprised that what was one of the central dramas to Charles and Camilla's wedding day, namely the change of date, the mess up over the licensing arrangements and all that, I'm surprised that didn't feature at all. But hey, um, there's plenty of other things that weren't in there and then plenty of made up stuff that was. So I can only say I'm with you on that. Kelly has also written in to say, loving this podcast so much. Are you going to go back and do the previous seasons? I would love to get your take on those earlier issues The Crown covered. Well, thanks so much, Kelly, for your feedback. We're very happy that you're enjoying the podcast. Uh, I don't think we'll be going backwards over the previous series because I don't think Robert can handle the stress. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry if I have blown a gasket rather more than (laughs) usual in this particular episode. But, you know, I I talk about getting out with a bang. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But do stand by. This is not the final episode of this podcast and we are working on something very special. We are indeed and you'll hear about it very soon. But for now, thank you for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction and goodbye. Goodbye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.